You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 29 West Tolpahawken Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. So we're in the midst of a series of someone asked questions. Uh, We're answering questions that you all have submitted ahead of time. And the first week that I spoke, it was an Ask Me Anything, so it was unprepared, open dialogue. And then last week, Gwen White was here, and she talked about why we share money with the Mennonite Central Committee and why we care about anywhere but here. And Rachel, your pastor at South Broad, answered the question, how do I reapproach the Bible after my fundamentalist upbringing? And she expanded that question to mean, like, after whatever your upbringing is. Um, Then she also uh, is answering the question, can other religions or non-religious worldviews be as good or better for other people as Christianity is for me? Your pastor, Ben, answered, uh, what theology do we share with the Mennonites and our Anabaptist tradition? And what does without worship we shrink mean? Why worship anything beyond expressing gratitude? And Johnny answered um, at Frankfurt Ave, he answered, why do, I, why do we call it a kingdom anyway? And then Rod White spoke for one week. So that's like a little recap of this um, series so far. If any of those questions interest you, go to our website and listen to the podcast. Um, some of those might be your questions, actually, because we're pulling from this common pot, and each of the past, any of the pastors might answer any of those questions. Um, It's also true that we might not get to your question because we have so many, but we're holding on to them and um, may use them in other ways. And I hope that you'll take your questions to your cell, too, because it's a great place to keep the dialogue going. So this week, I am responding to the very first question I got, actually, was how can we discern speaking the truth in love from call-out culture? Or said differently, how can we participate in bringing the truth and maintaining a spirit of love that we're commanded to if call-out culture is bent on shaming? Um, It's such a good question because the questioner is identifying this tension between a common practice of call-out culture that's developed in our society and the reality that followers of Jesus are called to be truth tellers. One of our proverbs at Circle of Hope says, truth without love kills, while love without truth lies. So we we must speak truth in love. It's part of our new life in Christ. As our, our new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness and truth. We must practice speaking truthfully in love. But how do we do that? And is it different from call-out culture? Paul writes in Ephesians 4, uh, 20 through 25, about putting, on, putting, on our, um, putting off our old self and putting on a new, being made new in the attitude of our minds putting on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness and truth. We must speak the truth, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another, for we're all members of one body. 
So let's first talk about call-out culture. Um, a call-out, if you don't know, when is when a group of people ridicule someone for real or perceived words or actions that go against their beliefs. It's, it's a way to publicly respond to something that you don't agree with or something that you think is wrong, an abuse in an immediate way that has the public power of communal punishment. So on social media, the strength of a call-out is that it is immediately scalable and easily shared. A call-out can build a critical mass to affect change in a very short period of time. So I did some reading about where call-outs started. And it began, the idea of a call-out began with black femmes in 2011 and 2012 on social media who were being violently harassed, often daily. Death threats, rape threats. And it developed on Tumblr, which is a site that had no real means to block someone or prevent them from ha harassing you. So it was a way to stop those who were daily abusing others. When, when social media platforms weren't responding to complaints about these threats and abuses, it was like a survival response. Um, so it's important to note that call-outs developed because people in power and systems of power failed to respond to the problem. And there was a serious lack of support for victims of online abuse that, that sparked the call-out. So call-outs kind of became this vigilante justice doing the job in its own way. And then somewhere along the line, call-outs started shifting in their purpose. People began building a name for themselves through call-outs. And it, it kind of became a social performance. Um, anything that may have valued the humanity of people involved is kind of ignored for the sake of the spectacle. And there's a real audience for this, right? Um, even in small ways, people find criticism and mocking on social media kind of entertaining. I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, even in like Facebook neighborhood groups, for example, um, I can see people posting the eyeballs on the thread with no shame because they're just there watching the drama unfold as people go back and forth. And I suppose I am too, right, if I'm, if I'm looking at it, because I'm seeing it. But it is kind of sickening. Um, the call out became a weapon that anyone can use to make people who hurt others um, or who you think are wrong in some way, listen up, or at least um, be, be shamed into silence. Public shaming of other people has almost become like a new expected norm. And, and ostracism or professional excommunication, whatever punishment is painful enough to stop, to, to shift the moral code with brute force. That's kind of the power behind the call out. 
I listened to this podcast by NPR called The Call Out, and it offered, it followed a story of this girl who was a part of the hardcore scene, uh, who built her whole career as a performer and a, and a musician around calling out the harm done by men in the hardcore scene until she herself was called out on social media for being a bully in middle school. I think it was middle school. Um, and actually inflicting some of the very same harm that she was raging about in her music. And it ended her career. It ended her relationships. And it drove her into hiding. And this is not unusual from what I read. Um, her initial interview and uh, about what she was doing in her music and the interview with the guy who was responsible for calling her out had remarkable similarities. They both kind of talked about how good it feels to wield power, that kind of power to take somebody down. And there's a justification that this is what the person deserves. Just saying it out loud can like crush the bad guys. So it gives you courage to talk about what makes you angry and what's wrong in the world, and then to see someone punished for it. So what's the impact of the call-out culture? Um, as I mentioned before, it, it morphed into this common practice that's not just for the marginalized, but for everyone. Um, is it always toxic? I think it affects everyone. Those observing it happen, um, might, th those, those, uh, excuse me, those doing it might feel empowered, right? So, and people on the receiving end might actually stop the offense. Watching a call out can actually maybe be illuminating for racism, for example, or any ism. Uh, when something that seems okay to my white sensibilities, for example, gets called out, I might actually learn something uh, that something's racist before I see it myself. But it also creates this sense that people are watching and ready to take you down, no matter who you are. And in a call-out culture, it's no one's job, I found this really interesting to read about this, it's no one's job to release the abuser. They just forget about you. The girl in the podcast was one example, and she, she actually said that she started to erase herself. She said, I'm just trying to be invisible because the call-outs were so incessant. She said, the experience teaches you that you don't, receive, or you don't deserve mercy. The rules are, if you caused me pain, I have free license to inflict pain. Your humanity doesn't really matter to me anymore. And once you're stopped, you're left with whatever ongoing isolation or consequences are occurring, because there's no path back. It's kind of a merciless system. 
that relies on social isolation through mocking and shaming and public disgrace. So I was reading a little bit about the psychology um, that behind this, and the brain processes emotional and physical pain in similar ways. There are studies that show that the same two areas of the brain that spring into action in response to physical pain register social isolation in similar ways. So isolation doesn't just feel like it hurts, it actually does on a neurological level. So social punishment is extremely powerful. But when this kind of uh, denunciation on, is done through social media in particular, you can destroy people without ever even knowing them. There's, there's no personal connection that allows for apology and forgiveness. Even a public apology doesn't restore one's place in relationship because there was no relationship to begin with. Or if there was, like with a family member or someone you know, or like, you know, an ex-coworker or something like that, um, still a public call-out is intended to isolate and to shut down. The purpose doesn't lead to res uh, relationship and restoration. One more thing about call-out culture. A call-out culture drives us to adopt this binary mentality of us versus them, victim versus abuser. And this immediately depersonalizes everyone, and it reduces complex human beings to simple good versus evil. I think that's a survival response. And unfortunately, our society, our politicians, our world seems to function in this kind of binary thinking that puts us all in survival mode. The us versus them binary creates an environment where everyone has to be hypervigilant. And those of us with privilege might be tempted to jump in and prove our wokeness so that we can do the calling out instead of being called out. But when you consider that none of us have it all worked out, and all of us are wounded and hurting and maturing and healing, you can start to see that on some level, everyone is capable of being the offender and the victim. Zealously jumping in to call out someone's wrong or to expose their ignorance to name the injustice can be fueled by our own psychological wounds and fears as much as some um, enlightened wholeness that we've achieved. So what about relationship and restoration? How do we actually get to that? Um, calling in is something that's developed in response to the call-out culture. Calling in means speaking privately to someone, to an individual who has done some wrong, in order to address the behavior without making a spectacle of the address itself, right? Because the address itself is so public, that's the power of it. So calling in is doing this privately in some way. And the idea of calling in is to create an environment a learning environment where instead of 
publicly being called out. Individuals can be pulled aside and walked through why their behavior was problematic or, or oppressive. And I think the idea behind that is that we all learn better when we're not defensive, right? Public shaming and mocking and relentless social isolation are punishments, and they may not achieve the kind of learning and transformation that produces lasting change in an individual. And left to our own devices, defensiveness and bitterness can lead us to spin our own stories about what we think happened to us and, and leaves little room for healing power of repair and restoration. Calling in does make space for enemies to become friends. It, it creates an opportunity for learning and confession and forgiveness. But the critique of call-ins is that they, allow, they can allow people to claim that a problem is solved without actually solving it. On like small-scale offenses, there's often many versions of call-ins that, that someone has tried before they'll take it to a call-out. Uh, there are usually attempts to block or disengage or mute or ignore or whatever flawed social media tools uh, allow. And it's only when those cease to work that someone uses a call out. I don't think call-ins are the answer necessarily either. They do require more of both the person naming the wrong and the person receiving the rebuke. And sometimes it's too much of a burden on a marginalized person, for example, to expect that to happen without the context of safety and relationship and accountability and community. Confrontation like that can feel unsafe. And social media is not, doesn't, doesn't allow for that to happen. So call-ins do need to happen in a bigger context. But here we get to the rest of the question. If we're followers of Jesus, we're trying to get into the reality of God's grace that leads us through the danger and the opportunity of conflict so that we can be affirming and assertive and concerned with relationships and transformation. We can have conflict about something that needs to change without the goal to inflict punishment that would erase someone, for example. So we can actually ha enter healthy conflict with the hope of a relationship on the other side. God's grace can enable us to love people who are wrong and be the one who is wrong without it destroying us or erasing us. There's a way to enter the danger and the opportunity of conflict with love as our guide and not retribution. So let's look at how Jesus responds <clears throat> to his own experience of the call-out, though it was not the call-out culture that we're talking about. I think it's still um, instructive. The woman at Bethany who breaks the open the alabaster jar to pour perfume on Jesus is, is an example. 
So let's look how Jesus responds to his friends who are trying to call out uh, her behavior. Can somebody read that for us? Thanks, Phil. Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering me? She gives them a few of them. The poor Thank you. That was Matthew 26, 6 through 13. So the disciples thought they were right. They were trying to do the right thing. These, these were the men who were closest with Jesus. They were learning from him every day. And they still got it wrong. They tried to name the offensive behavior and the misguided thinking of this woman. But Jesus was doing something so much bigger than giving money to the poor. He was giving his life for all. He was not focused on one aspect of societal injustice. He was making a way to overcome all the wrongs of society by establishing a new kingdom through his life and death and resurrection. So he rebuked the disciples in love, calling them into an eternal reality that he was working out. Their rightness about the poor was based on the law, and it was limited. Um, here, I think it was a hindrance, actually, to seeing Jesus, who Jesus really was, and what he was doing. Their call to give to the poor was like not more righteous than the righteousness that Jesus was establishing for everyone. There's another example in Matthew. 12, 1 through 8. Uh, and in this instance, Jesus and the disciples are, are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, so they begin to pick the grain and eat it. And the Pharisees saw this, and they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he responded by saying, essentially, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Basically, if you had understood what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He, he is Lord over the rules and the purity living of the Pharisees. But again, Jesus calls them into something bigger that he's doing. He's not, it's not about following or violating the religious or cultural codes for living. He, he is greater than the temple, Lord of the Sabbath. And this is outrageous to the Jews, and it gets him killed. 
So let's move on to speaking the truth in love. What does that look like? How do we follow Jesus' example? I want to read one more story from Luke 24, 13 through 35. And in this encounter, it's, it's happening after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead with two disciples who are walking along on the road to Emmaus. I don't know if you can see that very well. Um, Sorry, I thought I had the story in there for you. I'm going to read it to you. That's okay. You can look at this picture as I read. Now, on the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with each other, talking about everything that had happened. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces were downcast. One of them said, are you, on, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he said. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's, it is the third day since all of that took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did you not, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going on further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us? And they got up, and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and they said, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two of them told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. These men were deep in dialogue on their way home from the crucifixion. Can you imagine what they were saying? And Jesus came along and he 
He raised them up from their pile of despairing, self-condemning words. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we all need? Jesus listens and asks questions. I think this is what it looks like to speak the truth in love. Whoops. He listens and asks questions. You can see this happening in Rembrandt's sketch of this story. I think if there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to be angry and hurt by his friends, it's after they abandoned him and left him to his death. They didn't even see him. After all they had been through, they didn't even know him. He told them what would happen. He even predicted his own suffering. And he begged them to stay awake with him in his pain. And they just couldn't do it. They had missed him and they had abandoned him on every level. And here he was coming back to relate. And instead of jumping in on them to rehearse the wrongs and expose their weakness and ignorance and lack of love and lack of faith, he asked them a question. He got right in the middle of their dialogue to listen. In the dialogue, Jesus is raising them from the words that were burying them. I think the second thing he does is he reacts and rebukes. And in the process, he builds hope. He reorients us, and he opens up new possibilities. The French painter James Tizot, in this painting, The Pilgrims of Emmaus on the Road, you can see them he, uh, where he rebuked their foolishness and then, re- then explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. If Jesus could explain himself again to his disciples, how much more can we enter the dialogue with patience and hope for each other? When we see each other missing the realities of those who suffer and our own, when we hear the dialogue that dismisses injustices of others and our own, we can get into it with one another. But Jesus does it in a way that builds hope. He's at the center of this story. His, his resurrected body right there with them is the evidence of new possibilities that exist. Jesus is redirecting them even as he is traveling in their direction. Speaking the truth in love requires relationship and direction. It's about seeing ourselves on a trajectory with Jesus. And the last thing I think he does as you look at this picture of, um, actually, I don't know the, uh, I don't know the painter of this picture. <laughs> he enlightens. He brings eternity into our morality, mortality. Excuse me. I think this. The, I'm, I left this picture for the end because it's the most unrealistic of all of them. Uh, Probably the English countryside look like that is not really what Palestine looks like. (laughs) Uh, I think it's especially unlikely to find um, the road there on the bottom left. Um, 
But the lack of reality is good because the artist is putting the risen Jesus right where the Lord belongs, present, risen, in our space, speaking into our lives. Jesus is right in the middle of the conversation and right in the middle of our time. And he stayed. Jesus stayed with them for them to get it, for them to see him and to know that his presence changes everything. God gets to us in the space that dialogue in love provides. So let's keep working at that together. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you stay with us. You get right in the midst of our dialogue. You reveal yourself over and over again so that we can get it, so we can receive you and the new reality that you bring. Help us to to stay in it, to stay in a dialogue of love to keep working out relationships that allow for confession, forgiveness, and restoration. In Jesus' name, amen. There's some time for talk back. Maybe you have something to add or disagree with. Yes, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you. Grace. This is a good question. Actually, I'm going to open this to the whole group. And and before I do, because you all might have thoughts on this, uh, I would also recommend the the new podcast that our Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter team is doing is called Color Correction. And they have a, um, I think they have like four episodes or something, but they have one where they talk about this directly and kind of how each of them um, is working this out. So I think there's not one right answer. What do you guys think, Aisa? Um, yeah, I think about that stuff a lot, too. And it, um, it responds to grace. I, I feel like a lot of times social media, even though it's supposed to like connect us, like it's just it's like a fake type of connection. Not all the time, but a lot of times. So I don't know. I, I'm like skeptical a lot of times about like addressing like, like important things on social media because I feel like a lot of times things that people will comment and stuff like they would never say that to your face or like you would never say that in a conversation. So depending on obviously every situation is different, but I feel like a lot of times face-to-face conversations and things are like more, 
and got to a deeper level than just those. Because people, like, they just comment whatever they want. And a lot of times you're like, wow, this person said that. That's so unlike them. But we all do that, you know? <laughs> we don't have, like, a filter on social media. So I don't know. Yes, Ariana. I just had a Your hand was up first, but let's go across the room. Jeffy, um, Robbie. I was just also going to kind of piggyback off of what Israel said just then. Like, I think their uh, social media innately is just like the attention span is so short, right? People are just scrolling, or if you step into video game culture, which is even worse than just YouTube culture, uh, um, the call outs and just the, the random crap that people will say is uh, ridiculous. It, so, you know, like, you bring up Johnny Rashid, and I think that there are people that want to engage in that conversation, but they're few and far in between. So, like, people would rather just, like, say this thing and just never look at that comment that they said. They'll never go back to it. Maybe they will. But I think, that, like Haisa was saying, it's, it's way better to engage in person because now you have their attention, they catch your tone, they catch your um, emotion. Uh, whatever. So I think that it, it is significantly more difficult to have any sort of um, if you're looking to relate to this person and like help them understand what you're trying to say uh, it's way better to do it in person than online. Thanks Jeffy. Robbie. Yeah I guess that's, that, that's leading into my comment because like I think the way I think about it is like well what are you trying to do on Facebook, you know, or where, wherever, you know? I've gotten into more than a couple uh, Facebook spats. And not really spats, but it's just like people get pissed at what I post sometimes. And I'm like, well, it bothers you so much. Just don't, you know, keep scrolling or something. But, like, these are friends of mine from high school and stuff. And, like, uh, like they, they, they post really angry things at me, you know? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, my goodness. I'm, I'm surprised a lot of times. Time. But, um I actually don't think I'm like solving the problem that I'm posting about. A lot of something that I've heard around Circle is that we're looking for people who are looking for us. And so I just believe the stuff that I'm posting about. 
and it's kind of an expression of like what we're working towards sometimes or just what I'm what I care about what I write about and so I'll put it out there socially and I mean like there was somebody who's coming up this weekend who they, they something came up last minute but he, we've been talking for months and he's been wanting to meet you all um, because he's from Maryland and he's like that he was like a really cool community and he literally wants to drive up to Maryland to meet you you know so it's stuff like that like I want people to see who we are so I post honestly it's a good reason to do it Ashley did you have something to say um, this is actually not an answer to that question, but um, I was just thinking that I don't really like this juxtaposition of truth and love. I think love is truth and truth is love. Um, so I was just going to suggest that maybe if you think you're having to choose between one or the other, you're not doing either one. You know? Because, like, like, I think, yeah, it's like it's both. Yeah. That is what the proverb is getting at, exactly. But you're not, you're not choosing. You see what I'm saying? Because I, I, I get what the proverb is trying to say. That like you're saying, like if you're soft in your love, then that's like not sufficient. Uh, like, I guess what I'm saying is like if uh, if you think you're loving someone, but there's not truth, you don't understand what love is. And if you're speaking truth. That's a really good cell discussion. I don't know if you're asking me something or if you're just illuminating that no, proverb more. I think it's good insight. I don't, I don't Uh, yes. There was somebody, uh, okay, somebody else before you. Joel, all right, both of you. And sometimes you have to stop and think, am I the person to communicate this well? 
I think we cleared that up for you, Grace, right? <laughs> she, just, she just lit the match and threw it in the haystack. <laughs> All right, I think Patrick and Joel, you both had something to say? Okay, Joel, close us out. Excellent. I hope you will continue this conversation in a cell. If you're not already connected to one, they're all open to you and they meet throughout the week. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.